You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm Warren Pies, founder and strategist at 314 Research. Today, I am joined by Tony Greer, founder of TG Macro. Good to be back with you, Tony. Big day. How have you been? I've been great, Warren. How you been, man? Good. Um, today, uh, you know, market's ultimately down. Bond market gets a little bid. Oil, mar- oil back above $100 a barrel. But obviously, the big story of the day is CPI and inflation. Everybody wondering, uh, with 8.5% increase year over year on the CPI, if this is the peak, where we go from here? So much rides on how this inflation statistic comes turns out through the year. Uh, what's your initial take just on today's CPI report? Well, you know, you look for it as a trader to be, you know, a, a sort of the beginning of a sell the fact event. You know, markets have been, you know, um, rallying in inflation mode heading into this headline number. So, we, you know, you kind of would have expected an unwind of things today, but we didn't really get that. You know, what we got was, um, you know, eight and a half percent year over year CPI. But really important underneath the hood is the food index, which was up by eight point eight percent, Warren, like the largest 12 month increase since May 1981. So, you know, we've reached historic levels here. We've got I heard there was a number like five or six Wall Street banks called this the peak of this inflation period right here. And I'm sure you have your views. And my particular view on this is I'm wondering where the commodities are going to come from. So that's the view of the Wall Street bank analysts that, you know, since we are on par with the highs, you know, that we've seen in the past, that this is probably where this peters out. And I have no idea where they're coming up with that type of scenario. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, just to, you're you're dead on as looking at the food component, the energy component, the commodity drivers of this number. We uh, we have a chart. We prepared and updated the data from 314. I think it's a good one to take a look at and set the table for this discussion. It shows the big drivers of inflation of this print. So we're up eight and a half percent year over year on the CPI. Where did that come from? Well, you basically have to start with energy. We break out energy within just within. Uh, home and autos, so we're breaking out of both those big segments. And energy is about 29%, is accounting for 29% of the year-over-year increase we're seeing, this 8.5% number. Cars are the second biggest driver, 26% of the year-over-year increase is in cars. Housing, about 21%. So you're seeing housing contribute 21% of this number. Food, 14%. Uh, everything else is about 10 or a little under 10%. And that's how it breaks down. So you can see how energy can either be a big headwind or tailwind to this, uh, to, to the CPI numbers. That's what we've seen in the past. And so if it's a peak, and if these Wall Street banks are saying it's the peak, then it means that oil prices uh, are basically going to be more or less under control from here. And so that's an implicit bet. It's something you and I have talked about quite a bit is that you know if you want to do macro in this environment you better know the oil market right and so if you don't have a view on oil then really you are just you know f- 
flailing around in the dark. So oil is going to drive CPI going forward, in my view. Uh, we do have base effects, which is going to make it harder to get these really outsized numbers. But if we were to spike back up to 130 bucks a barrel on oil, I think we see 10% CPI within the next couple months. So, I mean, this is uh, oil's driving the bus. That's how that's how I see it. Yeah, I can see that happening as well, Warren. I feel like there's some pretty decent tells on the tape um, recently. You know, if you look at the spreads, the calendar spreads in WTI, you know, for example, we had, you know, May, June trade of round trip from 50 cents out to $5 at its widest and then come all the way back into 50 cents. And if you notice, you know, crude oil did the same back off to $93 and then rallied $10 again. So it feels like, it, you know, it's amazing that the spreads have backed all the way into support and stayed there. And yet all of a sudden we've got a $10 rally in flat price crude oil off of the lows. And I think that that is an, a little bit of a hint as to the direction that we're likely to follow. And, you know, similarly, we've got natural gas pressing the upside of its recent ranges, which is only putting more and more pressure on that food component of CPI, which is why I really don't trust the number backing off from these levels right now. Yeah, um, that's a great point. And so one of the things I think it's really important for everyone to understand is the extent of the lockdowns that are happening in China right now. And the fact that crude oil is shrugging this off is a huge signal for what's going on in that market. So yeah, we've seen some uh, physical market deterioration, but you're talking about between uh, you know 40 million Chinese lockdown right now. And that's that's it. That's two states of Florida. And the lockdowns there are much more punitive than what you see in the United States. I mean, they are basically barricaded in their homes. So when you're talking about more than double digits of the Chinese China's uh, gross domestic product accounted for uh, in the lockdowns that we're seeing right now. So, you know, that's a demand outage. Russia was a supply outage. So we're dealing in an abnormal market. You know, we had supply outage. We, we missed maybe 3 million barrels a day from the the Russia-Ukraine uh, war, now we have a demand outage, which is kind of swinging the pendulum back and forth. But if you go back to the Omicron scare, where we thought there could be some kind of tepid lockdowns, I mean, the market fell apart. So we have a huge, we have 40 million Chinese citizens under lockdown, and oil's above $100 a barrel. I think that the average generalist does have no idea what the, the signal they should be getting from this. Do you see it differently? No, that's a great point, Warren, as well. You know, I mean, taking all that demand offline and still having WTI sticking its chest out, $100 bid is definitely one of the causes of concern that I have for oil not, you know, simply mean reverting to $80, you know, anytime soon. So if, you know, just to get sort of, you know, if we, if we can go to the equity market, the same thing is reflected, right? And the same thing continues to be reflected that we've been calling the great rotation, and, you know, we, we, we saw it. What was interesting to me was that last week was the first full week of trading in April and in the month of April in the new quarter and in the new month. And that was evidence of the great rotation where we saw, um, you know, natural resources rally and tech back off. And then you look at the tape today and you've got a six and a half percent rally in WTI leading the charge. You've got metals and mining, oil services, Bloomberg commodities all up over two percent energy, um, oil and gas and silver, natural resources, all on the plus side of the tape. And on the negative side of the tape, which is netting a net loss for the S&P, you've got, you know, social media, financials, healthcare, internet, biotech, software, solar, 
all of the same stuff that's down on the year. So I think the more we see and the more we get confirmation that headline inflation is going to be with us for a while, the more this rotation, this what I call the great rotation where natural resources lead, the more that gets rolling in motion. And I think we're going to see some eye-popping numbers by the time we get to the end of this year. Yeah, energy up 1.7%. Last I checked uh, today, and I mean, really everything else was flattened down on a sector basis, like you said. And that's just a continuation of what we've seen this year. I mean, energy just kind of taking, just lapping the rest of the sectors out there and up versus everything else negative, up 40% versus everything else negative. I have to give you credit. Uh, a couple of weeks back when we were talking, you flagged a few natural gas stocks that were, you know, basically breaking out of a long-term consolidation and Southwestern Energy was one, for instance. Uh, and now we've had nat gas spiking. You were you were onto something when you found those charts, um, and there's been a huge rally just within the last couple of weeks. Um, I would guess that you're riding that still. That this is not the the upside you're looking for out of this group. But I wanted to get an update on that from you. Yeah, thank you for noticing, Warren. You know that that trade has been really, really um, as difficult as it's been to follow and stay involved in. It has been telegraphed quite clearly by the fact that you know nobody in Europe or the U.S. is backing off any of the carbon neutral plans. And, you know, as we continue to see prices spiral out of control this way, we're going to continue to see, you know, elevated CPI numbers. And then we're going to eventually end up in, you know, some sort of humanitarian crisis. Now, this is the offshoot of the natural gas trade because natural gas is driving all this, right? The higher natural gas goes or the longer it stays elevated, the higher the ammonia price goes the more uh, the farmer has to change their plans, the more that goes into the calculus between whether they're planting corn and wheat or planting more soybeans. And this is going to change the calculus of, you know, the inflation print, our food inflation data and, you know, how the farms wind up outputting different agriculture products. So, you know, I'm still looking for a lot of stress to be caused by the commodity sector um, in, in, in the fact that it continues to rally. I just don't see any of these low inventory scenarios getting cleaned up anytime soon. And just to speak, you know, to natural gas, you know, we're going to we're going to go through this summer where everybody is going to be in accumulation of winter month mode. And then we're going to get to a point where the index indexers are going to be buying the winter months. So, you know, we've got a potentially toxic upside cocktail in natural gas. And, you know, I know that we're nine months away from Dece natural gas or eight months away, but this is when you have to start plotting into that trade because there's already a very significant bend in the curve where Dece natural gas is a big three or $4 premium over the entire curve. So that's gonna be the way to manage or at least keep an eye on this trade. And the other way is gonna be to keep an eye on Dutch TTF natural gas over in Europe to see if they're able to keep it under control as they um, sort of expand their inventories as best they can with this issue that they've got with Russian production now. So as long as the Russia-Ukraine war keeps pressure on Europe to be accumulating natural gas, I'm, I'm concerned that we're still going to see upside in that commodity for, for sure uh, through the summer uh, more. And it just seems like we're, we've got the momentum and flywheel going in the right direction. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think the big theme you could sum up for today, I think you could sum up for the whole year, is that energy the value of energy has has to rise over over time coming out of this conflict you're, you're going to have to see um the the world leaders in the economy find the whole financial apparatus putting a higher value on energy and so this kind of leads in today's clip where luke groman was going through a very similar kind of thought process so let's let's take a listen to what what they talked about and come back and, and get our thoughts look i think in the last month with what we've seen and particularly what we're seeing in europe we're seeing that whatever valuation the free markets are putting on energy and raw materials, their importance, the difference between energy price and energy value is wildly mismarked in the Western investing public's mind. And we can see that by virtue of the reaction to Russia, Russian sanctions, right? So when Russia invaded, it's, oh, we're gonna cut Russia off. Oh, look, there's ruble, rubles collapsed. Um, Russia has no power, and then Russia says, "You know what? We're only taking ruble for the dollar, and we're only taking rubles for our gas." And and the West goes, "Wait a second. And the ruble goes from one forty to eighty five, like that. And so my point is that I think the cattle, I, I think the Russian invasion, the sanctions, and 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 the responses of both parties and and the fears of of outright shortages of energy in Europe, rightfully so. Um, I think may represent a catalyst for a collective recognition that the gap between the price of energy and commodities and metals and the value that those assets bring to the real economy have been allowed to rise to record-wides, if not all-time record-wides. And when I say price versus value, I could summarize it by a comment I made to Hugh on Twitter, which was, listen, that. Western finance people tend to look at commodities for the price, right? Oil's price hasn't risen in you know 15 years. It was 150 in 08. It's 120 now. If you want to understand the difference between price and value of oil, I, I said to Hugh, I said, listen, instead of taking a jet back to Scotland next time, take a rowboat. And you'll, about you know an hour into that, you'll understand the value of, of, of energy relative to the price of energy. So there you have it. We're going to need to see uh, energy as a as a commodity and as a strategic um, asset is going to have to rise in value. And I think one chart before we pivot off the energy stuff and move on to some other assets, I wanted to just make sure we we get up on the screen is our chart of the Fed's of CPI versus the Fed's two percent target on the top clip. So what we have here is CPI, and then we have this linear extrapolation of what the Fed wants two percent inflation forever. And then on the bottom group, we have oil. And I think the important point of this chart is that when we had the shale revolution and oil kind of fell apart in that 2014-15 timeframe, that's when the Fed kept or the CPI kept perpetually undershooting the Fed's target. So it goes back to the little micro thing we started this whole conversation with, which is that oil is going to dictate the direction of CPI today, this year going forward, and many years into the future potentially. So we could turn from a uh, tailwind for disinflation to a headwind that becomes inflationary on these energy commodities. So 
it's a theme we're going to always go back to on these daily briefings. But for now, let's move on to a couple other uh, assets that are important that we should talk about, specifically inflation safe haven or, or, or really center stage assets like the dollar strong today, Bitcoin, you know, started out strong and faded and gold continuing to kind of like plot higher. So what do you see here, Tony? What's your thoughts? Luckily, I've got an, expl an explanation for all of this, Warren. Well, let's hear it. Doesn't mean that first. <laughs> no, yeah. All right. So, what? Take it one at a time. Um, let's start with the dollar, as in uh, the dollar index. Just to round it off, you know, DXY making a new high above one hundred today. Um, that has been part and parcel of this entire um, commodity inflation rally. As you know, is that the dollar index has been rallying alongside rallying commodities, which is sort of counter to what we've seen in the past but not counter to this situation that we are in right now where we've got the fed pivoting to a rate hiking regime and the dollar just isn't done gaining value on that proposition yet so i think that explains or partially explains the dollar strength warren when i look at uh, bitcoin just sinking like a stone over the last couple of days while that's really hard to get a handle on the only thing that i noticed was that it clearly perked up and rallied sharply when there was this war on money rights flashing across the tape from um you know trudeau shutting down the truckers finances um, flipping to, you know, the U.S. cutting Russia out of the SWIFT system. You know, it seemed like when there was a pressure on who was allowed to spend what money, um, that Bitcoin went bid for a little while. And then as I, you know, just to remain a technician, banged its head on 200-day moving average resistance up at 50K and has now fallen $10,000. So that's kind of just the nature of Bitcoin to me. And uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that, Warren? Do you think I'm on the right track or am I out of my mind? No, I think you're on the right track. I mean, I think the dollar is the, the least dirty shirt kind of thing right now. You know, you've, you're basically versus the Europe, euro and the yen, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense to see dollar strength and also makes sense for gold to be stronger than everything. You know, and uh, the, the big takeaway I saw coming out of the initial invasion of Ukraine by Russia was that interestingly, Bitcoin did, you know, that's where the flows went. Bitcoin jumped by 20 percent on the back of that invasion. And so. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's a volatile asset, and there can be strongly held opinions on both sides. But the one use case that we identified early on was that this is the 21st century uh, version of a wealth transfer device. So whether you're talking about like a rare books or diamonds or art from you know centuries ago, Bitcoin is the way to transfer cross-jurisdictional large sums of wealth. And I think uh, the, the reaction to the invasion and to the sanctions on the back of the invasion kind of uh, confirmed its place in that in that. So I think you have to have, you know, all these things make sense. And what you're what you're saying, I think, uh, also uh, makes sense. What do you think? Yeah, you know, those that's a good explanation as well for Bitcoin. You know, it seems to it, it's definitely, you know, some kind of sentiment driven alongside, like you said, you know, the sanctions headlines and things like that. So, um, you know, we definitely run into positioning issues where, you know, it starts looking good and the laser eye guys probably get long and, you know, not realizing because they're not technicians that it bangs its head on the 200 day moving average at 50K and that has every reason to back off. Um, but if I may, uh, let's switch over to gold just as the clock's ticking here, Warren. To me, this is uh, eerily reminiscent of the Arab Spring in, in the early 2010s, around 2010, if you remember. That's where we had food shortages in the Middle East. Um, those headlines and that sort of 
you know, visual content was all over the screens. And at the time, gold was on a frozen rope higher, you know, toward eventually its peak in 2019 around 2K. So I'm trying to be cognizant that, you know, with protests in Sri Lanka and Peru and kind of spreading around the world now, um, somewhat related to either inflation or food costs or the like, um, it makes sense very much for me to for gold to be rallying under that scenario. And if you take a look, take a step back, um, you know, and look at the chart from 30,000 feet up, looks like it consolidated for a really long time and is now going to take a really long time getting into rally mode, but still looks really good to me. And I'm sure a lot of other players out there. Yeah, we're overweight gold in our models, and we've been waiting patiently for that 1680 to 1950 range to be resolved. And I, I, I think it it was resolved to the upside, and so gold mm-hmm. breaking out. Uh, in you know, I think that it's we we said to about gold when we first did our our big model. A couple things is that it's it's a reflection of policy uncertainty, and I mean, how when in the, in the history of modern or my life or your life. Have you ever seen policy more uncertain? So you you have to have gold in your portfolio when when you think of when you think of that. And then the second more tactical thing I would bring up is that when you look at 2018, and our position has been this economy underlying is weaker and less and interest higher interest rates are less sustainable than it has been in the past. And so we go back to 2018 when the Fed was hiking rates and getting towards the end of that cycle, and gold was the first asset to start moving really. And I think it was looking through the Fed and saying, look, they're going to go over the top with their tightening. And it started rallying in anticipation of that next inevitable um, the, uh, you know, stimulus phase, which I think we're kind of stuck in this stimulus loop, to be honest. So to me, you got to have a place for gold in your portfolio. I agree with you. It's, it, the technicals look good. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, a couple, this gets us some questions before we run out of time. Um, few people, I think this is an area you've talked about before, so I want to make sure is, uh, do you have a view on uranium and specifically uranium demand? It seems to fit in with your mix of trades that you've been uh, correct on. Yeah, you know, it it is one of those trades that is gaining popularity, um, as Jared Dillian continues to point out. I know that he quote tweeted a video today that was, you know, all about the uranium phase, uh, uranium craze, and the thing had like 9 million views. And, you know, as a sentiment follower, you have to keep that in the back of your mind, right? Because the trade is getting crowded. But you also have to keep in the back of your mind that trades getting crowded doesn't mean that all the participants are necessarily wrong. So, you know, the trade is developing because other points of baseload power are failing various places around the world. Um, you know, starting, we you know, we've had scares in Texas, we've had issues in Europe over the winter, and, you know, failures of the wind and solar scheme are going to lead people to, you know, discuss other forms of energy. And, you know, if, in my opinion, if you want to stay up to date on this, you want to follow Doomberg, the green chicken, pretty closely, um, you know, as his last piece was all about Sprott Uranium Trust 
and gave you a great idea of how that asset works in terms of how it trades on net asset value uh, above or below net asset value. So the uranium trade is really just a play on ESG failure, which is something that seems like a, a smart bet to have on. Um, you know, given there are going to be various points of tension over time as to how you know the carbon neutral plan is working. And, you know, if we're going to go about the carbon neutral plan the way we're going about it, we're also going to break shit on the way. And so that's going to mean, you know, that the market is going to have to make a decision as to whether the authorities and political pendulum can continue to push that carbon neutral, um, you know, play in that direction, or if they have to lay off the gas and, and, and say, you know, no pun intended, Warren, but, you know, maybe we should let our producers pump some natural gas so we can have some cheap baseload power before we let food costs spiral another layer of out of control. So that's just the way I'm thinking about that, right, wrong, or indifferent. It's going to be hairy to try to navigate this inflation trade. And, you know, the uranium trade is part and parcel of that, Warren, if that's fair to say. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, it's a trade I've heard about for years. Um, and so it's a little bit, I'm a little, I have a little bit of skepticism towards it, but it makes it makes sense if you can get, if policymakers can, you know, see the light. And, uh, but that's, that's sometimes is, is a tough road. Oh. Yeah, the skepticism is easy to have. You know, I mean, two and three years ago, I had guys bombarding my direct message links with, you got to get on the uranium trade, you got to get on the uranium trade. And I was telling those guys that I've had guys telling me about the uranium trade for five years now. So yeah, I'm, I'm still thrilled. I'm honestly thrilled for them that they're having a profitable moment in the sun. And, you know, we're just going to have to continue navigating it from here. I still think that there's room on this trade. I really do. Yeah, I remember Jim Grant writing about Camco in uh, like 2014 or something like that. So it's been out there in the uh, ether for a while. Um, another question kind of goes along with some of the recommendations that you've been uh you've been making uh, do you prefer to own commodity producers or miners or would you prefer the commodity with some leverage uh that's a good question you know with um you know there's two things come to play in mind here you know i've always said as a commodity trader if you've got a bullish bet on the commodity then play the commodity in as much as you can uh, I realize that it's always better to play the commodity via futures. That's the most efficient way. And I know that not everybody has access to that. So people wind up playing the commodity via the ETF and therefore wind up giving up a lot of slippage in the trade. So that gets a little bit tricky, but I do believe that it's a good bet to be long the actual hard commodities themselves. I think there'll be, you know, I think the Bloomberg Commodity Index is still going to have its day in the sun where it trades like, Bitcoin in 2020 and goes up every day. It's just a question of how much. And so I think it makes sense to own the hard assets. And at the time, at the moment, Warren, I, it's hard for me to make a case against owning the equities because I believe in this equity rotation where natural resources based equities, your metals and mining, your oil and the gas production companies are going to become a bigger weight of the S&P than they are now. So if that's my bet that those stocks are going to expand in their position in the S&P as technology backs off, then, yeah, I mean, I still see some upside in the equities, too. So I think that the idea, as I come across it now, is probably to be along some combination of both. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it comes to um, I, 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 everything you said is correct. In general, I would say you want to express your view as particularly as you can through the instrument that you're using. 
In this case, I think you could probably throw a dart uh, in a lot of these situations, but I personally am recommending um, for producers in the oil patch, for instance, and in natural gas patch, I'm recommending producers, uh, large gap safe producers in uh, jurisdictions that are like, you know, North American jurisdictions and specifically Canadian producers have been where we've been directing clients. Uh, Great point. Great point. Cash flow is king, right, Warren? So essentially, yeah, producers are, are probably my preferred bet in this market. Um, next question, what are the key signs you guys look at to gauge demand destruction? Tony, like you, I'm long commodities, energy, metals. I'm trying to protect, project how high these can go before it makes sense to lighten up. You have any thoughts there? Yeah, you know, I don't think that we're at the point where, you know, I've always used $5 gasoline at the pump as a sensible level for demand destruction. It seems like a round number, um, you know, that maybe a lower income family might say, you know, this is where we draw the line and, you know, not take that long summer drive on vacation. So I don't think that we're at the demand destruction level yet. My, my answer from my end is that Typically, you see the oil market is finely balanced, and you know, uh, you know, China. If you get a the first whiff of a slowdown in China, for instance, you're going to have you know a, the price react because you know, 250 half a million barrels a day is a huge swing factor. But we're not in that world right now. We're in a world where there could be a four million barrel a day gap between supply and demand due to what's happening over in uh, in the Ukraine. So. That's why you can have this much of a lockdown in China. You could have so much demand falling off a cliff. We're talking about Chinese GDP falling below 4% potentially on the back of all this stuff. I mean, we're in uncharted territory in oil still at 100. So demand destruction, in my view, is not, you know, we took 3 million barrels a day of global demand off market during the global financial crisis. So we would have to do more than that to balance the market just on demand destruction. So I think that, it's going to be a combination, ultimately, of policy response. I hate to say this. I don't want to have lockdowns and stuff, but that's how bad I see the supply and demand balance shaking out with the big caveat that the, the sanctions on Russian oil continue and you know go the direction that we see them going at 314. Um, the, uh, I think we have time for you know maybe a question, one more question. Do you have a we didn't talk about copper. We have a question on copper. You have an outlook. You have a view on copper, uh, Tony. Yeah, you know, Warren, I'm very price and performance driven, and you know, as I'm sure you've noticed, copper seems like it's either side of or or sort of uh, consolidating just north of 10k right now, right on the LME, and so it it hasn't been able to get out in the driver's seat. I think because of that stagflation read, where you know maybe copper 10k is at the price where you know, maybe it rearranges some plans for people that are using copper as an input price, saying we don't really want to chase it much above here. So copper to me has been really uh, a kind of be careful to no touch trade as within part of the metals and mining trade, just because the commodity itself seems to not be able to get on a horse and rally. If you look next door at the aluminum ring on the other side of the coin, you've got a, uh, uh, you know, a metal that fails to do anything but make a new high every other week, you know, so so I'm kind of more attached to chasing that trade down and maybe chasing down an Alcoa trade or a Century Aluminum trade than I am looking for a copper trade. I just think copper is going to be so sensitive to the first sign of a pullback in economic activity 
that that's what it's got. That's what's got it's what's got it capped right now. And that's just my own theory. I could be wrong. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think you have to re be really mindful of the charts like you are on all these things right now. I mean, when there's this much volatility and there's so much uncertainty, price rules everything. I've always said that you want to build conviction based on fundamentals, but you want to manage risk with price and technicals. And so, you know, I think that your approach is the right and most prudent way to do it in this environment. Uh, I think that really is about covers it today. It feels like we could have gone on and on and talked more and more about a lot of these themes, which I'm sure we will in the weeks to come. Uh, you know, just to recap from my perspective is that, you know, inflation is going to drive Fed policy and oil is going to drive inflation. So ultimately, oil is running this market. And if you don't understand oil, you probably don't know what's going on in this market. And that's the uh, that's really the the outro take in my view. Um, Can I make that okay. sentence my ringtone? That, that would be great. Yeah, perfect. Right. That whole spiel that you just went on, that would be a great ringtone, Warren. That's what I specialize in. It's actually a subsidiary company. <laughs> Ringtones and impressions, very obscure impressions that no one would know. Oh, I love it. I love but, it. Um, We're going to go over some of this. All right. So, yes, absolutely. So, well, once again, it's great to be back to you. Um, you know, we'll be back here, I think, next Tuesday. Um, I appreciate everybody watching us uh, out there. Uh, tomorrow, Maggie will be back with Darius Dale. It'll be an awesome combination. Don't want to miss it. So until then, thank you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com